everyone, and welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and I am here today with a brand new guest on the show, one I'm very excited to talk to, um, basically someone who uh, we've never met in person, but I have read so much of his work over the years that I kind of feel like I know him to a degree. Um, his name is John Kenneth Muir. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty good for a uh, for a, a, a chilly uh, Saturday morning, anyway. That's just, uh, I'll, I'll get by. I have the, the hot mug of tea and I'll be good. Uh, you have been called, among other things, uh, one of the greatest genre critics of our time. And I never thought about it until recently. But uh, yeah, considering the number of books you've published over the years, I got to kind of wonder if you're not at least in the running for a title of that type. Well, that is so nice, Rod, for you to say that. I, I appreciate that so much. You know, I'll I'll get a swollen head and it'll exp- it'll explode. You know, David Cronenberg <laughs> style. If I you know hear things like that, I, I just love writing about you know movies and television programs, and I, I hope that when people do read what I write, they see that. You know, my place, you know, I, I don't like to think of myself as, as like a critic. I like as an appreciator. Like, I, you know, I, I mean, obviously there's some things I don't like or that don't work for me, but I, I usually try to come from a positive place. And I, and I think I'm very lucky in the sense that, um, you know, I'm an older guy now. I'm in my 50s. And I think that I, I sort of came about at a time where people were hungry for that more positive view like look looking at what's right about something rather than sort of snarkily attacking what's wrong so you know I, whatever success i have i attribute to to the fact that i love this stuff you know <laughs> well i i i can very much appreciate that because i think that uh to to, to put it bluntly uh the 21st century and the the advent of uh, every everyone having uh, the ability to tell you exactly and immediately what they think and feel about something has had a, a detrimental effect to the kind of larger discussion of some of the stuff that you know both obviously that both you and I love to death. And yes, I, I right. one of the things that is most evident in your writing to me is your positive outlook, your 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 willingness to focus in, uh, in on the things that work for you, on the things that you like and enjoy, rather than, as you put it, you know, the, the, the snarky end of the thing where you're talking about the, the things that don't work for you in a, in a, in a way that is, uh, you know, uh, hipper than thou, a, a way that actually kind of clouds the discussion because it essentially is built to inflame uh, emotions in the, in people who take the other opinion. And it's it's uh, this was evident to me a long time ago because the first book of yours that I came across several years back was your fine book on the British television series Blake's Seven. Uh, oh, yes. A, a personal favorite of mine. It's a show that I discovered while I was in college. <laughs> through uh well you know at that time of course the only way was tape trading someone handed me a videotape of uh uh the I didn't know I didn't know what it was at the time I had no idea but somebody handed me a videotape that had uh season 3 of Blake's 7 and the very beginning of of season 4 <laughs> and I took them home over a holiday I can't remember what holiday it was but I watched that tape again and again and again and just became became aware, oh my God, somewhere out there in this world, there's more of this. And so uh, I, you know, quickly became a fan, eventually, um, eventually was able to see the entire series one way or another by hook or by crook. Right. And, uh, 
uh, when I stumbled across your book, it was it was like a, a door opening wide. It was the first time I'd ever run across anybody else who was, uh, well, let, let's put it bluntly. Uh, there were people who knew about the show and that I could talk with about it, but not very many. This is pre wide, you know, wide internet adop- uh, adoption. So we're not talking about it. it's easy. It's much easier. People, if you're living. In the past 15 years, <laughs> it is very easy to find freaks and right. geeks of your own type now, and it just wasn't back right. then. In the 90s, it was uh, it was a different animal entirely. And so seeing that book and buying that book and, and reading that book <laughs> and realizing, oh, wow, somebody has written an entire tome about this show and I'm, I'm not the only one who takes it as deadly serious as I do this is this is this is wonderful so I for, to, to, to start things off I just wanted to thank you for a writing that book and B uh, kind of giving me the uh, the knowledge before the internet allowed it to be a much bigger uh, and more widely held belief that I'm not a lunatic <laughs> well thank you so much for saying that because I loved writing that book I loved the discovery of Blake seven and you, you know, th- this sense of sort of finding it for yourself. And then, you know, you, you sort of have to get through the, 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 the haze of the budgetary limitations. And and then like, once you're able to cast that aside and see, you know, the, the so many interesting things that the series does and it does so well, and it, you know, really pioneers yeah. so many things. And it, it's, you know, I, I just loved having the opportunity to write that book. Although, I mean, at the time, you know, I'm sure a lot of people thought I was crazy because they thought, what, you know, what the heck is this? You know, there are five people in America who know what Blake 7 is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so spot, it was so bo- spottily broadcast over here. I mean, right. it was, uh, it, it, and, it, and its tone was very different to what people, I think, here in the States were expecting from uh, British science fiction on television at the right. time. Absolutely. Because we'd all been trained by Doctor Who by that time, so... Oh well, I, I appreciate you saying, and I'm so I'm so, thank you for buying the book and for reading it. <laughs> you, oh yeah, it's it's I'm I'm pointing. You you can't see this, but I'm pointing my hand at the bookshelf right now, where on which it sits. That's great. But um, we are here today because I contacted you uh, out of the blue. If uh, uh, I guess it was about two months ago now, because uh, uh, for 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 no good reason whatsoever, other than the fact that uh, the entire show is now out on Blu-ray, I have been spottily going through and re-watching episodes of Space 1999. Yes. The, the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson produced science fiction television series that ran uh, in the mid-70s. And uh, I, I've always held, uh, had a bit of a fascination for the show because it, it was so different from what, uh, once again, different from what we were expecting of television science fiction at the time. And... Um, I contacted you out of the blue because I have been on a bit of a hunt trying to track down all of the uh, the kind of um, print ephemera uh, of uh, the kind of additional you know apocryphal you know side shows side episodes or side stories I should say uh, connected to Space 1999. Both of those published while the show was uh, on the air. And uh, things that have been published in the subsequent decades. And I have to admit, I've I've been able to track down. Uh, what are, you know, obviously bootleg reprints of a lot of the black and white comic book stories and things of that nature, which I've, which I've enjoyed. And uh, I started seeking out 
Well, let, let, let's just say that the, some of the original paperbacks from back in the 70s, uh, I, I wish somebody would go ahead and reprint the darn things because, well, they go for ridiculous sums of money uh, up into the eight and $900. And it's like, you know, I'd like to read that, but I'm never going to pay that price. Right. But I did know that, uh, one, you had written a book about the show and you had also, in the early 2000s, along with a few other people, published some new Space 1999 novels. Uh, but I couldn't find them. I could the, the I, I looked them up at the time and and realized that if I wanted to buy a a used copy or any kind of copy, it was going to be upwards of sixty or seventy dollars. So I thought, you know, I'll contact you, see if you know of a a cheaper route. And lo and behold, you did. Uh, <laughs> I want I want to thank you for that. A and B. Of course. Um, uh, I have now noticed, strangely enough, that those those books that you published, uh, well, those novels that were published along with yours in the early 2000s are now back available very, uh, very easily on several different websites. And uh, I, I, I can't take any credit for that, although it may have been me needling people going, why can't I buy this damn book? <laughs> well, you know, the, the Powis line of Space 1999 novels is still ongoing, uh, you mm. know. As recently as – so I, I wrote The Forsaken, as you said, in the early 2000s. I mean maybe that was like 2002, 2003. And then there was an anthology a few years later called Shepherd Moon, and I, I contributed two stories to that. And then in 2014, I, I wrote another novel. I mean I, I realize that's like seven years ago now, but that was The, the Whispering Sea. But there are still new novels coming out from Paus. They still have the license to – you know, create and, you know, publish, uh, officially, you know, recognized space 1999 novel. So, so that is still ongoing. I want to let you know that Rod, because you, you can really find, you know, through Powis, uh, you know, born for adversity, uh, resurrection. Um, they, they actually have taken those books that you mentioned, the, the episode adaptations from the seventies and, and, and it's amazing. They, they went back to the original authors and they've gotten them to like create omnibus, like a year one omnibus of all those stories and a year two omnibus of all those stories. So it's like, Mm. you can, you can even get those, but they're not of course in the original, you know, paperback with the original, you know, art and stuff like that, which, which of course is a piece of collecting ephemera. You want that you know, you want it under that title, like Lunar Attack or Moon Odyssey with the photos <laughs> from the series and stuff, you know, but, but, you know, you can still find that there. So I, I did want to let you know that, 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 that oh, is well, still, know. still happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, no, I, I'm primarily, don't get me wrong. If I, if I stumble across a, a cheap copy of, of an original piece, I'll buy it. Right. Uh, I, I say as I look down at the the British uh, Black Hole annual I bought because it has a comic book in it that is impossible to find otherwise. Uh, I don't. I, <laughs> I, I love the Black Hole. <laughs> I have a love hate relationship with the Black Hole. I tell you what, there's a conversation to be had about the Black Hole, and I'll be glad to have it with you because yes, uh, because a, a, a lot of it will involve me having to stand up and walk around the room pulling my hair out and screaming, but. <laughs> I feel that that is true of almost anyone who talks about the black hole. But right. the the um, if it, all I'm really truly interested in is just being able to you know read them. And so if there's a if there's a cheap reprint, trust me as a as a as an old pulp aficionado, I, I don't care if I have an original pulp. I want to be able to read the stinking stories. Uh, so that's fine with me. Gotcha, gotcha. That's great. Well, uh, what uh, uh, just just to to start things off. Uh, 
we, we will assume some knowledge of Space 1999, or at least a little bit. Uh, it's it's an odd television show, especially if you've never run into it as a younger person, because when it, um, well, it was very spottily shown here in the States anyway. Um, I did not realize that when I was younger, because of course, uh, being being uh, born in 1968, I grew up in the 70s, and so right. I was I was the perfect age for this show to uh, infect me of the same way that Star Trek did, and all the shows that came along. Um, you know, I was a Kolchak the Night Stalker, f- you know, f- fanatic, and then of course uh, the Logan's Run TV series and the oh, Buck yes. Rogers Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica. Uh, and of course, you've you've also written a, sh- a book on Battlestar Galactica, but I'm not going to go down that path right now because I'm okay. trying to stay. I'm I'm trying to keep myself focused. I will try to stay focused. Stay focused. But um, it was a show that uh, stood out in a lot of ways. It was very different from what we were expecting and what was the standard at the time, especially if what you were expecting was something along the lines of Star Trek. So, when did you come to the show? How old were you when you first? first saw it well rod you know you what you mentioned is very close to to my story i was born in 69 so you know we're we're contemporaries Mm -hmm. so i i was you know uh five six years old uh maybe six seven when it came out and you know i i often wonder how did my parents have the sort of foresight to sit me down in front of this thing that just you know absolutely galvanized my attention and I became obsessed with. I mean, I became so obsessed with it that you know I, that was the first book I wrote about. The, for my first novel was Space 1999. My first professional sale to a magazine like Cinescape was Space 1999. Mm. You know, I it it just consumed me, and I, I had been a Star Trek fan, but something about Space 1999 resonated with me uh, as a young person, and you know even really more so than star wars did after that so it's weird because i write in my book you know space 1999 is kind of this weird thing that's you know sandwiched between star trek's popularity and syndication in the mid 70s and then the advent of star wars in the later 70s you know 1977 and here from like 1975 to 1977 is this you know literally out of this world mind-blowing science fiction horror series um you know and and i think part of the reason that it so consumed me was that sort of dash between science fiction and horror the the literal you know hyphen there between those because you know episodes like dragon's domain um which concerns sort of a, a monster in like a, a really horrific sort of lovecraftian alien uh monster um you know, attacking you know th- these astronauts, it it it, it just seemed um, like a uh, you know th- this weird conjunction of things. It's like it was futuristic, and yet it was scary. The idea that you could go to space with like all this technology that seemed very realistic um, at the time, and then like go to space and encounter like some sort of horror like that, I found like very appealing. You know, the images from that episode were you know, imprinted on my mind, you know, this, this alien would like sort of hypnotize the astronauts and like drag them into its big, like steaming maw. And then it would spit them, I mean, it would spit them, it would eject them out. Yeah. As bones, right. As steaming skeletons and just like ripped their flesh off and then spit out the bones. And, you know, just, just that idea of something like the stars and like 
our sort of prehistoric fears of being eaten, like together, like you know, <laughs> you, you, that that idea of that together, like going to the stars, but having like this very horrific, you know, uh, you know, kind of jungle thing happen to you. You know, it's like wow, <laughs> primitive man. You know, we're, we're we're there with the greatest technology, and and we still we might as well be you know cavemen with what we're facing. Um, I found that very powerful, and, and again, like you said, you know, you know, incredibly different from Star Trek, and, and also from from Star Wars after it, uh, it, it just something totally different. You know, the idea of space not as you know this sort of United Nations where they're all different aliens and con- or countries who get along, and space is like an ocean, and we sail it, and we go to those different countries. You know, it wasn't that. It was like you go out there, and all bets are off, and everything you think you knew from Earth isn't going to apply here in space I, you know i understand a lot of people at the time hated it because i said well it's kind of anti-science but to me it was instead of seeing it as anti-science it's, it's like metaphysical and it, and, it, and it like had a philosophy about space yes it was totally different from star trek it's totally different from the fairy tale star wars was but it's like it, it had a great concept for space this idea of we're going to get out there and we're sort of not going to know what hit us and and you know the the heroes in the show are you know psychologically and even technologically unprepared to deal with what they face? I, you know, in the seventies, you know, uh, you know, the era of Watergate, things like that. You know, it's like that. That was really some powerful stuff. I think. Oh, I, I agree, and I think that you put your finger on the, an aspect of the show that turned a lot of people off automatically, whether or not they, whether or not they stumbled across the episode Dragons of Domain or not, right. is that. There being a very different approach, I would describe it as more adult, but at the same time, very much in touch with the fear of being thrust into the unknown. Right. Uh, trying trying to bring a sense uh, uh, repeatedly of what it might mean to be thrust into the unknown, only partially prepared no safety net whatsoever there's no you know there's no rescue coming over the hill for these people right if they don't if they don't succeed in almost every instance then they're going to die right and there's a there, there's this 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 doom hanging over them almost all the time in the show and there's this uh i mean don't get me wrong there's a there's a sense of hope as they as they uh uh, rather implausibly and and, and interesting tr- interestingly travel from place to place attempting to find a way to get off this dead lifeless rock but before their uh their chances to do so run out or they all die right it's 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 a it's a very strange concept for a show uh, and it uh it, it's we first of all yes okay if if you're going to uh, strict to stick to some kind of uh, strictly uh scientific plausible so it, it, plausibility does go out the window in episode one, and, <laughs> there, 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 and that's acknowledged within the body of the show itself. I mean, uh, we we have a, we have characters, you know, repeatedly making note of the fact that they are in the position that they are in the first place, being in a moon base on Earth's moon after an explosion of a type has thrust the entire satellite out of Earth orbit and into you know some kind of bizarre other place out out in space. Uh, traveling without any control, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's ridiculous. Any explosion that could have done that could have blown the moon out of Earth orbit. It's it, it, anything that we can imagine anyway would just fracture the entire thing, and that would be the end of it. Right. But the fact that they acknowledge the near impossibility of the scenario in the first place does make it 
uh, at least the kind of thing that should have allowed more people to just accept the 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 prospect, accept the concept, and move forward with it. And the 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 there is a certain subset of the audience, especially back then. I mean, I think I think looking back, people are more willing to be uh, open to this to a degree than probably they were at the time. Right. But the 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 feeling at the time amongst a lot of fans is well this this is simply ridiculous this is this just can't happen and to which i always say well yes let's talk about the transporters uh, you know <laughs> right, exactly. if we want to talk implausibilities let's talk about matter transporters in star trek okay let's let's be a little open about things right. if we're gonna start tossing around well that's just not possible it's like well really <laughs> well you know johnny Byrne, who was you know, script editor and wrote so many stories. I, I feel very fortunate that I, I got to know him for, for about nine years before his passing. And we talked a lot about Space 1999, which which he loved, you know, even later in his career, you know, which he just had such affection and love for. And he said to me, he said, you know, when I was told the concept of the series, John, he said, you know, this black cloud just kind of covered my eyes. <laughs> and I thought, how how are we going to do that? And then he said, you know, as as a writer, I, I'd always learned. You know, I, I always operated by this principle. You know, turn weakness into strength. And he said once, and, and it's kind of j- like what you said, Rod, which is you know very insightful on your part. Which is like once you sort of accept that, it opens the doorway to all of these other like fantastic things. Um, yeah. You know, like you said, they, they you know they the characters themselves say we should have been killed. Like it shouldn't have happened. What's going on? And that becomes sort of this underlying, you know, mystery about the show and about the the journey of these people on Moonbase Alpha. And, and and that was intentional. They, you know, the writers realized this premise is going to be hard to sell. So you know, sort of let, let's have the characters themselves, you know, comment on it, and then let's do stories where you're like, okay, so was this all part of some cosmic plan we're not aware of? You know, you know, and you have stories like. Um, the last story of the season, Testament of Arcadia, where like the moon is, is sort of, ha- you find out it's kind of been guided to this planet uh, and it sort of st- yeah. it stops dead. And, you know, they were working, they, they took the concept that on its face seemed absurd and turned it into something really meaningful. They, you know, if you stuck with the series, you would see that they turned what seemed a weakness perhaps, uh, you know, into a strength of the show. And I mean, I think that, you know, if I may speak for you, probably the reason that as an adult it's still of interest to you is the same reason it is to me. It's because of those sort of intimations of, you know, an underreality that we don't see and or, or that only like sort of half perceive, but which the Alphans are living. Uh, you know, and again, to be doing that, you know, in 1970s syndication um, is pretty astounding. Uh, yeah, you know that the, the, there's there's something there that you, even now we can go back and visit it and see that thing there. And it, you know sometimes it's half formed, sometimes it's more fully formed, but it's there, and you you, you can't really deny that it's there. Um, and, and, and so it becomes this very, as you said, unusual show. It was very unusual show. Um, and 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 the concept, of course, you know, if you just take it at face value and don't give it sort of the benefit of the doubt. You know, you're going to think it's ridiculous and want to, you know, jump out of it. But like you said, we all accept things where we choose to accept them. So, you know, we mm-hmm. we, we choose to accept that um, the transporters work in Star Trek. 
you know, we choose to accept with V that, you know, aliens would travel all this way to get water and eat us when there are probably easier ways to access water. You know, but, you would think, yes. you, you know, they, <laughs> I mean, but that, but it would be sad if you did that and said, okay, well, the, the heck with V, you know, I'm not, I'm never going to watch that because, you know, it's ridiculous because, you know, really what that show was about was of course, you know, it can't happen here. You know, the idea of fascism, you know, rising sort of in the United States, you know, there were things yeah. there just like there were things in space 1999 that if you just decide you're going to write it off from the beginning, you're going to miss out on all that stuff. And, you know, I remember being at conventions as a young man in New York city uh, they were Star Trek conventions, and I'd see people walking, you know, down the aisles in the, you know, the, the, um, the hotel, uh, and they would be wearing T-shirts that said "Waste of Space 1999, Star Trek Lives." I thought, oh wow, it's like, can you, can you not, can we not like what? both? They're so different. Why do we have to pit them against each other? You know, they're. Just- I, I know. I've never understood this. This. I mean, it's not just in science fiction fandom. It's it's in any kind of fandom. This desire to to um to to embrace one thing by denigrating another and it's, right. it's almost as if it's the only it, it's the i hate to say it but it's incredibly well i don't hate to say it i'm going to say it outright it's one of the most childish ways in which you can enjoy something right. you enjoy it not by elevating it and explaining what about it appeals to you you ex, you you uh you explain your enjoyment of it by denigrating something else and therefore, essentially pointing to the, pointing to the, uh, the 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 shadows and saying, "I hate the shadows." This is what you know. Therefore, giving the impression that it's the thing casting the shadow that you that you would prefer, but the shadow itself is terrible. Right. And the the, the thing that we're looking at here is is the thing about Space nineteen ninety nine that continues to appeal to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I. I love Star Trek. I do. Right. I, I watch I it. Too. I watch it ridiculously large numbers of times Me every too. year. It's insane. But at the same time, the weird thing about Space 1999 is that there are. Um, it, it, it's that thing that you were talking about a few minutes ago. The idea of there being this hidden reality that these people can only occasionally glimpse, and it, it's it's the heart, and, and that's a part of the horror aspect of the show. That rears its head and kind of you know shakes a shakes a scary monster at you occasionally, but also instead of it necessarily being a monster, sometimes it's just the scary concept, <laughs> and those are the ones that linger the longest with me. Don't get me wrong, Dragon's Domain, the the, the episodes in which there's a an actual creature or some you know some you know a possessed member of the crew or something like that. Don't get me wrong, those are those are scary beasts as well. Right, but it's those creepy concepts the things for instance to me one of the one of the best episodes especially of the first year is is as you were talking about a testament of our of arcadia right yeah which which i have to admit and i i I, this is one of the reasons why i'm so pleased that the show's out on blu-ray is uh, my viewing of the the entire series was so spotty over the decades that it's not it's not until this blu-ray came out that i finally saw that episode oh okay yeah okay and it was like see i didn't recognize the title and i went hmm let me go ahead and see this one and at I swear to you, after the first 10 minutes, I realized, okay, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen this one. This is kind of exciting. Because then, of course, there, there's this doorway that opens up. Wait a minute, how many more of them have I not seen? <laughs> oh, man, it's like an extra, little, an extra little bonus thing I didn't know anything about. And then, by the end of the episode, I felt like this might be 
the single best episode they ever produced. And I felt that way for like three weeks. Mm-hmm. It was it was astonishing because it exists in that that realm where, well, first of all, I love the way the story plays out. I love the way the story is told. I love the fact that they admit within the body of the show that there are two characters in the episode who we went, we will never know what they experience that causes them to do what they do. Right. The show is blatant in that no one else will ever know what they experience that causes them to cause the trouble they cause later on. That to me was, I mean, that's straight off the pages of horror fiction. That's the kind of unknown thing that causes the plot to move into to high gear or to change direction or to do something that you completely were not expecting. That I, yeah. just was not typical of television series at the time. Absolutely. And, and again, Testament of Arcadia was written by Johnny Byrne, who also wrote um, another one early on called Another Time, Another Place. Uh, and, and it's sort of it's like where the, the Alphans like go through something and it like splits them off and like one moon and set of Alphans goes five years into the future. And then like the other one catches up to them, like not having lived those five years, but on that planet, uh, they, they get to Earth and like on Earth, the, the they, you know, future versions have lived there for five years. And, and again, it's like it's like visualizing this. Hidden reality, just like you said. I see that, like, you know, you can almost like go from Breakaway, the first episode, and then do Another Time, Another Place, and then do Testament of Arcadia. And you're just having these intimations of this other way of thinking uh, about Mm -hmm. space, about humanity, about time that's really fascinating. That's just incredibly, like you said, you know off course for what was being done in the 70s. And listen, I love 70s sci-fi shows. I love Logan's Run and Fantastic Journey and things like that. But you Mm -hmm. you can see that they had learned very clearly the lessons of American science fiction TV and Star Trek, which is this week we're here and must interface with this, and then next week we're here and we must interface with this, and then we solve sort of the problem of the week, but then we move on to the new problem of the week. Again, nothing wrong with that. You know, nothing wrong with that concept. But Space 1999 was so different because there were those moments like with um, Testament of Arcadia where the show withheld some key knowledge from us so that we couldn't necessarily comprehend it all. And what happens in that hole of like non-comprehension, we start to fill in with our imagination. And that was what was so powerful to me as a young man. The idea of my imagination going in and sort of suffusing those things and thinking, could it have been this? Was it this? Could, could Could this have been what happened to them? You know, one of the stories that I loved, again by Johnny Byrne, it was called Force of Life. And it's like this object comes to Alpha, um, you know, and, and it's draining power from Alpha and then it leaves. What is it? <laughs> you know, you never really <laughs> know. And there is a famous incident on American TV where I guess Buster Crabb, who had been Flash Gordon, and Martin Landau, who, you know, was Commander Koning on Space Night Tonight, they were sharing like a morning show. And Buster Crabb kind of was saying to Martin Landau, like, I watched an episode of Space 1999, and it was Force of Life. And he was like, 
I didn't understand it. What was this? Did you understand? And like Martin Landers like, no, I didn't understand it either. But that was taken as like a criticism of the show. Well, it was taken as a right. negative. I was like, no, yeah, that's, it was, it was, that's yeah. great. Why would they understand it? And, you know, I talked to Johnny Byrne about it. He said, you know, John, that story was all about metamorphosis. It was all about, you know, this thing arrives. It needs energy and it leaves. It's as simple as that. I said, you know, what is it going to do? Stop and announce itself and say, you know, fill me up. You know, and then I'll be on, you know, so you, you know, you, what more do you need to know? You know, what, what more do you need to say? And, and, and at the end, well, of that, that's just it in this, in the seventies, it, 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 that, that was the mode though. You had to have an answer. <laughs> right. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And I loved not having the exact answer. I mean, I understood the story. I understood what happened to whom. And I understood the human component of that story, which was, you know, that, whatever it was, phenomenon, life form, whatever, went into an alphan named Zoreth, which is an anagram for froze, by the way. <laughs> and like, you know, and, and <laughs> Oh my God, I never noticed yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's just crazy when you think about it. And, you know, his wife is left behind because like he goes on with it. But part of him goes on into space with that thing. You know, part of him dies and part of him, you know, goes on in that organism or whatever it is, you know, into space. And Helena, you know, talks to you know, his morning wife at the end and she says, you know, we we may never know why this happened, what it meant, anything like this. All we can do is like try to help each other. And and, yeah. and again, to me, that is such a that I don't know why people can't see it. That's what human life is right there. That's what our existence is. You know, we don't always know. Yeah, I mean, we, we have science just like they do on uh, moon base alpha. But like, you know, we don't know, for instance, you know, why someone we love is in a car accident. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like, why did it have to be well, somebody we loved? You know, this is this is this is the point at which I've kind of I've kind of held back because this is something that I've thought about for a, a little while. And I've not seen this. Um, I've not seen this put out in quite this quite this way. I think one of the reasons why. Space 1999 was more difficult for an audience in the 70s uh, and maybe even an audience these days coming to it with certain expectations. I think the reason why it's more difficult to find an end for a lot of people is that, in a way, shows like Star Trek, which kind of conditioned the audience for what this should be, is a lot about um, ob observing from without. It's, it's a lot about looking at something as uh, someone from the outside looking in, looking through that little glass window into another existence and kind of uh, observing these people going through their motions and having, you know, having little romantic interludes, uh, solving problems and whatever. Whereas the feeling of almost all of Space 1999, it, it's a different approach where the, the idea is to kind of attempt to draw you in and have you identify with the emotions of the characters on screen. There's an attempt in the best episodes of the show, and even some of the ones that aren't very good, <laughs> to, I'll, be, I'll be blunt, to, Absolutely. To, to try to involve you at an emotional level somewhere beyond just, oh, isn't that sweet? They're, you know, they're in love or, you know, in other words, it's more than just uh, an examination of the surface emotional contacts between the characters. It's about a much more deep seated need within the human being. It's almost as if the show were set up. To be, and I don't think it was done this way intentionally. It just seems like this is what they they folded into because of the approach that they took with what they were doing. The the show seems to me to be much 
more of an invite into other people's actual interior lives. Uh, the, the, and, that, and that comes with problems by itself. It comes with problems almost automatically because the more you know about the, the way in which someone is feeling grief or uh, sorrow or fear, uh, the, the real th- underlying thing, the more you can identify with them, which is, which is good from a fiction point of view, but at the same time, it can be off-putting to someone looking for anything that would be termed light entertainment. <laughs> so true. So true. You know, it, that's such a powerful thing to say, Rod, because, you know, people said at the time, you know, the, the characters, you know, they they don't seem like as colorful as fully vibrant you know for instance yeah. like kirk spock or mccoy and and, and 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 i think on the surface level that's true but they play to me as like very realistic people and when they're when they're realistic like that like you know commander koenig he, he's like an administrator thrown into this role of having to keep his people alive but he's still like an administrator you know and, yeah. and he gets he gets pissy and assy sometimes you know oh, yeah. there, there are a lot of times when you when you, you kind of want to step into the screen and slap him it's like come on man think right right and you know it, it seems to me it's that like when you create this very sort of realistic almost like strip of characters that that then does give you that opportunity to do what you said to like place you know, if they're too individualized, you can't step into that. If they're more like just these realistic types, you can step into that and then get to those emotions of what they're feeling. You know, it's like Kirk is such a big flamboyant character. Uh, you know, to it's like, wow, I can't imagine myself as Kirk. I might imagine myself as a starship captain, but not, you know, not Kirk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but 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 it's like, you know, if if you have like, you know, this very analytical doctor who you know is doing her job and you 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 have this kind of fun pilot and uh you know this guy who's doing his best who's thoughtful but really not equipped to to be in the role he's in but he's doing his darnness you know but by having these sort of types like that you then can i feel like maybe identify more with the emotions of of what's happening like we get pulled into that it, it, it's easier to imprint ourselves on characters maybe who are not so individualized and and, and colorful I, I don't know it's just a just a thought but well i will say that i think that the space 1999 characters are less stereotypical of what right. we expect because once again these people were these people did not except for a couple of the characters um, scattered around the 311 people on the base when it gets shot out of Earth orbit, most of these people were not trained to go into deep space. They, exactly. they don't they don't have the skill sets or the mindset, and that's the real danger. They don't have that skill set or mindset to handle what that really means. And so, like I say, whether they realized it when they built the scenario in the first place that the entire show was going to be situated around or not, they put themselves in a position where they're putting people who are unaccustomed, uh, unwilling, and unlikely to be in these situations in them, and then watching the marbles fly around, essentially. Yes, you're so right. I remember you know, Johnny Byrne, he said to me, he said, you know, the, the magic uh, of the first year, especially, he said, was that we, as the writing team, we were learning 
and figuring things out at the same time as the Alphans were, you know? And a lot of times you can feel that, yeah. Yeah, you know, that, that we w- what we were experiencing ourselves is was sort of a corollary for what they were experiencing. We were learning our way. We were grappling with those things. And, you know, it, it's very powerful. I, you know, I say in my book, Exploring Space 1999, that the Alphans oftentimes are their own worst enemy when they when they succumb to fear or paranoia or distrust um you know that 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 they create the impediments that put them in danger yeah you know so again that that's a really powerful story paradigm and again and and i love star trek i mean you know I've, i've watched it all with my son again and again every you know, Father's Day and birthday, I make my wife and son watch the Star Trek movies, including Star Trek Five with me over again. You know, they can quote them back. To oh me. my goodness! So, really? you know, I, I love not Star, not Star Trek Five. Come I on. do. I make them do it. I do it. So, you know, I love Star Trek too. But you know, the the idea of Star Trek was like kind of like, and there's nothing wrong with it. But just to contrast them, it's like we are human beings and and we have evolved and we're wonderful. And now when we take our values to like the Melkotians or whatever, they'll look at us and they'll test us and they'll say, wow, you really are wonderful. You've lived up to the best in humanity. Let's be friends. That's like a wonderful, affirming, optimistic view. I think the view in Space 1999 is a bit more, you know, grounded in the sort of cynicism of the 70s. And it's like, here we are in space. We have this opportunity to interface with the aliens. But we're just as likely to kill them as attempt to interface with them, you yeah. know, in, in a peaceful way. And it's like our humanity, our our fear, our unpreparedness for this, you know, makes us flawed. And so we can't succeed with them, you know, and that drove a lot of people crazy in the 70s. But, I mean, if you look at today and where we are today – globally culture i mean which do you think is more likely right (laughs) well yeah without without a doubt right (laughs) that that we're gonna face some kind of crisis and defeat ourselves or we're gonna face some crisis and come out of it and be like oh we're great our values were really there all along you know right (laughs) i I would love to believe because i love star trek and i love that i love that optimism i'd love to believe that's who we are but space 99 and just and again, this just rubs people the wrong way. Because you're talking about a show where people travel on the moon to other planets, <laughs> but in so so many ways, it's so much more realistic than Star Trek. <laughs> Whatever that is out there, it's crushed Eagle One. It's done something to Kelly, and through him, taken over computer. By my calculations, we shall be at the spot where Eagle One disappeared in four to six hours, which is exactly how long we have to take action. So we're back to the old problem of how to drive this moon the way we want it to go. Only two practical schemes for that. Shock waves and anti-gravity screens. Both of those are aimed to reduce gravitational pull from another planet. This is neither a sun, a star, or a planet we're dealing with. Well, from the data we've managed to process, computer has determined that the energy field has no mass. Sir, we can't change course. What next? Well, we know it's organic and intelligent. So if we load an eagle with nuclear charges and aim it at its center, we might just be able to weaken it a little. Enough to reduce its crushing effect and let us get through. Yeah. Well, I better get started on that right away, Commander. All right, I'll undo it. Helena, we've got to get all the information we can from Kelly. He's on life support system. Yes, I know. Victor, I'd like you and Connor to try and find out exactly what it is computers transmitting. 
John, the point about Kelly's condition... Helena, I don't... we've got to try it. Well, you 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 mentioned you mentioned the dirty word that I want to bring up, uh, or at least one of the many dirty words that are associated with Space 1999. And so I'll just ask outright uh, for those of us playing at home, uh, which do you prefer, year one or year two of Space 1999? <laughs> oh, it, it, it's so difficult. It's like being asked to pick between your children. You know, I, th- I I'm I'm okay. So. I think that uh, Catherine Schell is wonderful as Maya. I love the character of Maya. I enjoy her so much in year two, but I prefer year one by a pretty wide margin. Mm. Yeah, because I feel that it, you know, there there was there was it was created, produced, and you know, delivered sort of in this cocoon. You know, this team of writers learning and growing as they went before, you know, the, all episodes were made before the first one was ever released. Yeah. And and so there there's a unity of vision, a unity of theme and atmosphere. And if you enjoy that vibe, you get it in those 24 episodes. And, and I mean, to me, that's like a staggering amount of work and a work of art, those first 24 episodes. I think year two... You know, that was when everybody came in and had their two cents worth. Well, we need more monsters. Well, you know, the the aliens are too um, hostile. We need to sometimes have lighter episodes. Uh, the episodes were too serious, so let's make them a little lighter. Yeah. Uh, and they kept the, getting jerked back and forth during production on the second year. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 I, and I think the... The the results are plain. I mean, I, I, there are many episodes in year two. I think are like I, I like and I think are strong episodes. But I I don't have that feeling of sort of watching this singular work of art. I see something that is trying to figure out what it is that they you know instead of saying like we had something here, let's just stick with that. Um, you know, I, I think they listened to too many. You know, there are too many cooks in the kitchen, and they listened to too much of the criticism about them. When, I mean, y- you see what the result is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, imagine that there had been two years in the year one format, and you know, think about how that might have taken off once people adjusted to it. And you know, people need time to adjust and, and you know, again, we've seen this again and again in science fiction TV series. I call it like. You know, first season wonders and second season blunders. You know, <laughs> you look at <laughs> you you look at um, you know Buck Rogers. You know, of course, wasn't great in its first year, but the changes they made sort of took away the things that were good about it. Yeah, um, yeah. Sequest went from being a very science heavy uh, show to becoming you know Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea Mark Two in the second. You know. Mm-hmm. Again, the the idea is like suddenly everybody lands and knows better than the people who, you know, toiled with the original vision. When you think, you know, this show might not last <laughs> beyond two years. Well, let's make them two good years. <laughs> you know, let's stick with what we think works instead of, you know, throwing everything out and then trying something different. And uh, again, I, d- I do want to stress, I really like Maya. Um, 
I really like Catherine Schell in that role. Uh, well, I like some of the changes they made to the show, but they're they're all changes that could have the, the changes that I like about season two uh, are things that could have easily been folded into just a continuation of what season one was. I, I and absolutely I, I like. Uh, having uh, a stepped up and and to be honest, lo- more logical uh, application of a security uh, detail, uh, have, right. having that be a, a a very verbal and obvious part of what is being discussed all of the time, because right. that is a consideration. And it's honestly, as soon as you see that aspect in the second season, you realize, oh, that really kind of should have been there from the beginning. Right. And yeah. and e- even if you don't say that or you say it like it took us this long to get this up and running, I mean, you know, they, they really could have leaned into that stuff like everything we've been through. I mean, it makes sense that they move their base, their their command center underground to this tiny bunker right. as opposed to being up there on the surface, which gets bombed how many times and, you know, <laughs> the, the first season, you know, season year one. Right. So, I mean, like that makes sense. The idea of even having, you know, artillery on the moon's surface, it's like, right. yeah, sure. They could have cannibalized, you know, the, you know, some of the ships that crashed on the moon and like built that, like that makes like in world, you don't have to have any stretch of imagination to see security needs a bigger presence. It makes sense that we've kind of moved our above surface facilities underground. And yeah, now we're more heavily armed because listen, you know, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, or, like, or, or, you fool, fool me 24 times. And the- <laughs> Right. I mean, all of that makes perfect sense in universe. So it's like, I liked that. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that what was lost, uh, was this idea more of, uh, you, you know, again, I, I hesitate to, to put this kind of value on, but it became a more Americanized show. And, and the idea yeah. being that like, we're here to kick ass. It's like, you know, these aliens come and we're going to kick their asses. You know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, there were, there were a lot, there was a lot more waving around of the, of the weapons and in the second right. season. And it's because, and, and I think that once again, you've kind of anticipated where I was going a little bit, which is the idea of the first season feels like a show put together by people who are, who are fairly interior in their thinking. They're, right. they're thinking about what this is going to do to people. Because that's that's the, what they've set up, and that just feels, for lack of a better term, more British. And 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 the, and the second season feels like uh, it feels like a show built for Americans, which is all about uh, shooting crap and blowing things up. And it's like not that right. not that the first season was without uh, you know enough eagle crashes to 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 litter the entire surface of the of the moon in the first place with uh, you know body parts and or ship parts <laughs> but at the same time it was it was not the attitude was not uh well, well let's rush in there and show them how big our penises are uh, but right. that is very much a lot of the attitude that you get in the second season which is this uh aha, I already have my gun out because I don't know what you are instead of the approach of the first season which was I would really like to know why you're here. And that's just the dividing line. It, it, it is, you know, and, you know, there's an episode, I think it's Alpha Child, where Koenig says, you know, I'm not going to start shooting, you know, till I know what's going on. But then you look at Martin Landau's, like, intro in year two, and he's, like, in a chair, and he, like, spins around and fires his weapon. I was like, 
he couldn't have known what was there or what he was firing at. Yeah, you're right. That's the perfect image to give you an idea of the differences between the two seasons. And It looks cool, but it's like, wow. It's, it's like, like, I don't know what's behind me, but I'm getting up and I'm shooting. <laughs> right? you know, like, okay, wow. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it is very different. But, but I do want to say, you know, again, that, you know, Johnny Byrne, he spoke to me about this and he liked Freddie Freiberger very much as a human being, even though he disagreed vehemently with the direction he took Space 1999. But mm-hmm. what it came down to for Johnny Byrne and what he said to me many times, he said, John, there would be no Space 1999 year two without those changes. Yeah. He, he said that. He said, listen, I, I can t- say, you know, <laughs> till the cows come home that those changes were wrong and that they you know sacrificed essential qualities of the series but we would not have 24 additional episodes of space 1999 without those changes that you know and 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 freddie freiberger's presence so so then the question becomes would you rather have you know 48 episodes of those two different styles or would you have rather have 24 of just the one style and and then how would space 1999 be viewed in that alternate history you, you know what i mean it's like, oh i don't i don't know i don't, I, I don't know but yeah. it, it's interesting to contemplate for sure well i i, I would say um i i get enough enjoyment there are there are episodes in the second season that i'm i'm, I'm very pleased with while I'm watching them. Absolutely. But, but but there are very few episodes in that second season that have the effect on me of episode of, of of the best of the episodes of the first season. So I I lean right. toward the first season pretty heavily. Um I mean even even episodes that I think um don't don't really work in the first season. Ones where uh the when I when I rewatch them I'm sitting there thinking to myself Man, this is a twenty-five minute episode stretched out to to pass the forty-five minute long mark. Things like the Infernal Machine, which is an entire episode built around a wonderful guest actor and right. a wonderful uh, you know alien spacecraft, and it has fifteen minutes of story. And you know, if by the halfway point of the Infernal Machine episode you don't already know how it's going to end, you're not paying attention. because, And it's just like, you're like counting the dust motes in the air, trying to get them, just let's get to it. Come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> but for every episode like that, there's another one where I, I find myself wrestling with ideas. I find myself uh, feeling uh, that, that kind of uh, hollow feeling of, uh, that that mean that that means that I'm not sure where we should go next or what I should think about certain things. Um, right. It, it's uh, there. There are moments of sheer sheer, just wonderful, mind bending, uh, expansive imagination. I, I find uh, some. I find episodes like I, I remember thinking that uh, one of my first my, one of my first episodes of the show after the initial uh, after Breakaway, which you know, sets everything in motion, which is, you know, essentially what we would nowadays call a pilot because it kind of sets right. everything in motion and gives you the, the, the concept and, and sets us in on the path so that all the other episodes that come afterwards can be watched in any order. Boy, that's right. not, that's not how television is any longer. And I, no. I, I, I like that. And at times I dislike that. Um, oh, don't get me wrong. I, I, I longed for those days back when Babylon 5 first introduced the idea of, look, this is one big long story with lots of little small stories. I absolutely loved it, but I don't think that every television show needs to be that way. And now, every, I agree with every you. television show is that way, for better or worse. But I saw Black Sun, 
somewhere soon after seeing Breakaway. And that was the episode, more than Breakaway, that both, as we were talking about earlier, cracked open my skull and my, my <laughs> uh, and, and made me realize, oh, okay, 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 here's how we're getting around the fact that the moon would never be able to escape the, the solar system in the lifetime of the people living on Moon Base Alpha. Uh, right. Because we, we get into a situation where they have no idea what's going to happen to them as they get nearer and nearer to this black hole and they plunge into it and come out the other end and they have no idea where they are and they have no idea how fast they're moving in re- you know in relation to anything else around them and they have no idea what their pathway is going to lead them to and then as you pay attention to things in future episodes there are other things that affect the trajectory of the moon as it's moving through free space and it's just it's it's that little hinge that allowed my little Star Trek infused brain to go, oh, oh okay, I, 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 okay, good. That then I have, I have that little hook I can hang my, my, uh, my belief on and go, all right, well, I, I can run with that. Let's do that. So, right, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it did find things like that, and you know, I, I wrote my uh, Space Nine 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 book. Gosh, I, I came out in '97. I wrote it in '94. That's how old I am. But I remember when I. <laughs> I wrote it, and I, and I can't quote it off the top of my head, but I, I remember like cataloging all of those moments. It's like, well, they clearly encountered location-altering phenomenon in these episodes, you know. <laughs> and and, I, and if my memory serves, I think I counted like six or seven times where you know it, it was clear that the moon had been shifted or moved through space, you know, in in some way that could permit them to continue, um, you know, encountering. Uh, you know, new planets or whatever. And, and, and you know, of course, in, in the first year, they, you know, it was over a long period of time. By the time you got to Dragon's Domain, you know, the Dr. Russell says it's like 877 days since, like, leaving Earth right. orbit. And then, like, they re- they rewrite that in year two, and it's like 300 and something days. It's like, oh, wait a minute. we You know, it's like, ah. Oh. It's like, you know, no, they, no, no, they, no. Keep moving they, forward. Right. Keep moving forward. Yeah. That's exactly, you know, why does it have to be every week? Why couldn't it have been that they were, you know, three years out in space in, in one season or, you, you know, that, like they, in the first year, they were really thinking about these things. They were thinking, you know, someone's going to object to this, so we'll, we'll have them move this way. You know, someone's going to object to, you know, we have to sort of have the, the, the science that we know, like, we we have to like sort of genuflect to the science that we know exists now. Like yeah. if it's something like that, we have to sort of acknowledge it, you know, and they did a good job with that, I think, um, you know, and then of course, but what the, the other thing is like when you got to things like that, they wouldn't know and that we have no experience with, it was mind blowing. I mean, it was incredible. You know, some of the, the landscapes like in Guardian yes. Piri, um, things unlike anything that's ever been seen on television or even really in film before, uh, you know, they did an excellent job of visualizing things that uh, to be clear, I don't think they needed to necessarily visualize, but they would do it anyway. (laughs) And, and and, and I'm just, I, I was always impressed. I still love going back to, you mentioned guardians of Piri and I'm always so impressed by how well the miniatures of the landscape match the physical yes. uh, life-size uh, version of the set. Yes. And, and it's like, wow, that, that, I mean, it really works and it works. It works in HD on Blu-ray. <laughs> I'm really kind of impressed that it still holds up like that. Right. You know, you can just see that everybody 
was sort of energized by what the possibilities were here to Mm -hmm. take this to, you know, a place that television had never gone before. And and again, even that was kind of used against Space 1999. Well, sure, it's expensive. They've got great production values, but they stink in terms of stories. You know, what we just want a human story. We don't need all those great special effects, you know. But it's like, (laughs) oh, my gosh. But, you know, that mind-blowing experience, that's part of the journey. Uh, Yeah. You know, again, you know, there were no recurring villains in space 1999 there was no, no. you know there were no not, well not not once commissioner simmons is written out of the damn show <laughs> that's right, right that's right and again he comes from us right <laughs> so yeah uh, but i mean if you look at the thing that always floors me is in that episode another time another place there's this shot and i guess it's a matte painting of of like it, it's an, an intricately detailed eagle and in the middle section of it you see the, the actors walking down you know, from the middle of it, and 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 it looks, you know, it just looks photo real, and it's like a shot you don't need. You could have cut from them, like opening the door to them walking somewhere, mm-hmm. but it, it's like this shot of them disembarking, you know, from the eagle, and it, and and it's lit, it looks real, it's on this alien-looking landscape, and you're like, wow. <laughs> yeah, how much money did you guys spend shooting that thing that didn't need to be in the episode right. at all? But which adds yeah. this verisimilitude to it that mm-hmm. that. You know, again, I, I mean, I know, you know, it, it, it's so funny. It's this weird yin-yang with Space 1990. It's not realistic because it's not scientific. But, but like, if you look at it, it's like the characters wear spacesuits in flight. How many times do people in Star Trek wear spacesuits? I mean, first contact, for sure. And more recently, they have in Discovery and other stuff. But, like, they, they, they always knew they had to wear spacesuits in Space 1990. You know, they worry about things like fuel consumption and gravitational pull. You know, it, it's like... Yes, then they also encountered these incredibly alien and unreal things, but it was grounded in those things we knew. The characters operated within a paradigm that we understood. You know, it's like, do we have enough fuel to go and come back? And is the moon traveling too fast? We won't be able to catch the moon if we go. And, you know, they were thinking about those things, you know, in a very sort of super real kind of way. Um, You know, again, you, you don't, you know, you don't hear about fuel consumption. You know, I mean, I know the dilithium crystals break and stuff like that or need to be you know reconstructed or things like that but you know we're not hearing things like that um necessarily in the original star trek uh well and, and you don't hear it in in a lot of different science fiction as well it's it's is it, well it, it's 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 the difference between uh having read the classic short story the cold equations and not having read, <laughs> and essentially factoring the idea that any once you're you know once you're in outer space you only have what you take with you (laughs) and any expenditure of what you took with you will have consequences. And this show uses that as often as it possibly can absolutely to, to generate tension, to build entire stories around, to, uh, to, to make things escalate in an interesting way. And don't get me wrong. There are other ways to do those things within, you know, a dramatic narrative. But this show wanted to, or at least seems to have felt it uh, a good idea to use scientific accuracy to the level that they could imagine it to make these things part of the story. And so that's why I think, and I and I, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record in a, in a lot of respects. This show seems to me to be ripe for rediscovery, which I think people have roughly been saying since 1980. So right. 
<laughs> I, I don't know that it's ever necessarily going to happen, but the but the not not with a a, a huge population to a degree. Right. No, I mean I think so. You know, I I have a a very good friend um, who uh, you know I, he's always looking for you know different shows to to binge and watch and. You know, I recommended this to him, and he just like he couldn't get into it. It was just like he yeah. could not he he could not make that jump into this world. It's not for everyone. No. <laughs> it re- I mean, it re- it truly is not. Uh, even when I have one good friend uh, who is uh, the the person that I kind of share this show with, and I have don't get me wrong, I have a I have a lot of friends who I I share these bizarre and disparate interests with. Um, Some some of them have, uh, as a sideline, I mean, I have a whole, I have a whole podcast that I've done for over 12 years about the films of Spanish horror icon, Paul Nashi. That grew out, that grew out of having one friend who I shared an obsession with these bizarre monster movies with. And after the death of Paul Nashi, he and I created a podcast because we were sad that we were never going to get to meet the guy. I have, in much that same way, if you look around, if I look around at my at my at my, my physical world friends, I have these individuals that I share specific obsessions with, and I have <laughs> one friend that I have in my life who I share this Space 1999 obsession with, and he and I will occasionally get together and we'll watch an episode. Now that now that the Blu-rays exist, we 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 you know we can we can dig into uh, dig into them and 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 pause them and do all kinds of things that we want to do with them and kind of talk them through and waste three hours going through a single episode <laughs> like total morons as we get progressively drunker because we're just you know we're 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 insane and maybe the alcohol will help. I don't know, but the the joys of it are 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 many and varied, but. It's also we we're well aware of the flaws. We talk we we talk about the flaws. We make fun of the show because I mean we make fun of we make fun of every show in the world in the first place as it goes. <laughs> but the obsession continues because there's something there that draws us back. And this other aspect that newcomers will never have is there's a certain callback to our childhood. There's a nostalgia aspect to rewatching episodes of Space 1999 that uh, really, I guess, for me started to kick in sometime in the 1990s when um, I was started to be able to rewatch the show uh, because, uh, this, yeah, you know I'm in my 50s when I bring up the concept of the laser disc. Because, <laughs> right. <laughs> because uh, it was at the time that uh, episodes of uh, Space 1999 were being pressed onto laser disc and were showing up in cutout bins in... Yes. Uh, in uh in stores and, and stuff yeah 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 so we would we were able to pick up uh, you know uh, a laser disc which had two whole episodes of a television <laughs> series right, right one on front and one on back and that's when we first started kind of sharing this obsession and we still will occasionally i mean we've done it twice twice in the past twice this year maybe three times we've gotten together and just sat down and uh, you know, it's like it's post-vaccination time. Let's obsess over this 1970s science fiction show. Well, absolutely. I mean, in the early 90s, I mean, I will tell you, I, uh, I, mean, I took my wife to every laserdisc store, you know, on the East Coast to try to get oh, all the my. episodes. And you know, and they, that was expensive. And she's like, yes. "Are you, you going to do something like this?" I'm like, "Yeah, oh sure, I'm going to write a book." <laughs> Yeah. Wait a minute! Is that the reason the book exists? Yeah, is that the reason Exploring Space 1999 exists? Is you had to justify to your it life? Is. Yes. So are you going to do something about this? Do you know how much money we spent on this? Uh, so, you know, we're living in this little apartment, and you know we're 
You're no, right. honey, I'm going to be able to. I'm going to be able to write this off on my taxes. I swear. That's right. Exactly. So this, this is research, honey. This is research. I'm writing this book. Um, sure. So, so I mean, I remember those days well. Uh, I mean, I still have. I don't have a laser disc player anymore. Unfortunately, my last one broke, but I still have the laser discs. So. Oh, I still have the player. It is still. It is still connected to uh, you know via by by hook or crook to the HD television. That's and, great. And I still have. I still have. Uh, I still have a few laser discs. I've held on to the laser discs that that um, are things that are still for some reason not available. In other any other format, um, I amongst my bizarre obsessions are uh, the the uh, movie serials from the 30s and 40s. Oh yeah, and and so I have a few of those on laser that are not available uh, legally anyway on on Blu-ray, and also because some of them have like commentary tracks on it that I don't know I don't know that will ever be ported over, and so there's this psychotic bone in my brain that just makes me go, don't get rid of, may never see again. Right? You no, know, oh, absolutely. I mean, I have. Uh... You know the Star Wars films on Laserdisc because that was before all of the CGI, uh-huh. CGI upgrades occurred. You know, I was like, I'm hold on to these. <laughs> uh, well, in that case, I think that what's going to happen—I mean, they're, they're they're just you know biding their time until they can sell us the damn things again. <laughs> well, I've got the Laserdisc. I can't watch them, but I've got them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, I got I gotta I gotta ask this question first of all. I do love exploring space 1999 uh, as a book. It's it. I have to admit, I've never I've never read it. It's one of the it's it's the it's the kind of book that's built for this though. Uh, I've never read exploring space 1999, the nonfiction book. Okay. Uh, in a straight line, all the way through, because the way it's built is I immediately I I've, I like watch an episode and I immediately just go to the book and open it up and start reading about right <laughs> reading reading your critique and your information about the episode that I've just watched I've never read the book from beginning to end because I uh, it's just not how my brain is built uh, to it's like I need I need the visual input and then let's study <laughs> well, you know, th- that's how I wrote the book so it's okay right. now listen how, however however it finds use to you, that's that's great. I mean, you know, I write these books too, like horror films of the '80s, horror films of the '90s, and you know, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I I don't know that you'd read those all, you know, front to end. I I think you'd do it. You use it just like you said. You'd be like, oh, I just watched, um, you know, Fright Night. Let me go see what John thought about Fright Night. I mean, I, I think that's how mm-hmm. those books, you know, I, I mean, I think it's probably the best way to use them. So that that doesn't, you know, bother me or offend me. I, I think that's great. I mean, you know, the hard part for me about exploring space 1999 again you know talking about my books they're like children and i love them was i wrote it in 1994 i was 24 25 years old and i haven't had the opportunity yeah, yeah. to update it since then and i just think oh i've become you know i didn't know what i was doing i mean you know i, <laughs> I, I i've become i, I hope uh, you know a, a much better writer in what i have i don't even want to say how many years that is what is that a lot, <laughs> right? A lot of years. I'm just going to go with a lot. A lot. Okay? It's a lot of years, um, and it's like, oh my gosh! I, I was telling a friend on the phone, and I said, you know, it, it it warms my heart, but it it also kind of frustrates me. Like I, every year, I am still getting royalties. Like that book still sells. 25 however many years later like i'm always getting like really good royalties for that book people are still buying. oh i'm not shocked yeah. Pe- people are still buying that book and i think oh my gosh i could do that book so much better now <laughs> right you know <laughs> you know i oh boy if i could just write that book now um and 
<laughs> you know, and and instead they're look, you know, they, they have twenty five year old John instead of you know fifty one year old John who, you know, and I've now interviewed so many of the players. You know, I've, yeah, you know, I interviewed Johnny Byrne many times. I interviewed Martin Landau. You, you know, it, it's yeah. like oh my gosh, I, I I've interviewed uh, uh, Kevin Connor and Brian John. You know, it's like oh my gosh, there's so much I could add there. Um, well, I think that there might be space in and and. Um, I, I'm not a publisher, of course, but I think there might be space for, if not necessarily a um, a revisiting of that book, perhaps a second book, uh, kind of uh, looking at what has happened both in the, you know the, the the novels and the the appreciation of the series and the the uh, release of it in HD and the th- essentially the things that have happened in the intervening two decades. That might be an interesting book because then that would allow you to do some commentary on the series that would be in addition to what you've already written, but right. it would be also kind of moving forward into other areas as well, because there's, there's still new stuff out there. I mean, I, I would love that. I, I would love the opportunity to do that, you know, and, and I would say it's, it's really sad. Like as long as it's selling well, I don't think I'll get that opportunity because. <laughs> well, no, that, but see, but I would think that the fact that it's still selling well would, would be a, would be something of a push to do a second one. But. Right. Right. Maybe, maybe I just need to, you know, reach out to me and say, Hey, Let's let's do you know space nineteen ninety nine twenty five years later <laughs> you know twenty five years <laughs> well, after exploring space nineteen. Here's a well here's the here's the thing that started this entire conversation off you know a couple of months ago. Uh, I have I've I've read your novel uh, space nineteen ninety nine novel Forsaken, and I have to admit I think it was I think it was excellent. I was fully prepared for uh y- you know yet another nonfiction author to not be a particularly great fiction author but that is not the truth. Oh, well, <laughs> okay? thank you. Uh this is this is an exceptional uh little little novel and it's one of the best well I, I have to admit up to now it's probably the best bit of uh post series uh, or even I, I even counting all the bizarre black and white comics that were published during the 70s. Uh this is this is the best like extra added value story that I've ever that I've ever read for Space 1999 and it has encouraged me to 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 seek out more. I need to I need to pick up that short story collection uh, that you've got a couple of tales in. Uh, I, I I will say that I, I from what I have been told by some other people that uh, having started with the Forsaken uh, to a degree it's 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 all a few steps down from there and so as you should you should take that as a compliment from these people who who I will not name but they do they they have informed me that oh yeah yeah that's the really good one and I'm like well I had no idea I was starting with the really good one I kind of wish I'd ramped up so oh so that I would I wouldn't feel disappointed by whatever I read next but. well. That's lovely, and I, I mean, I, I'm really flattered by it. But I can say, like, a lot of them are really good. Like, um, uh, the uh, you know, uh, one of the great episodes again at Johnny Burnham was End of Eternity, and there's a sequel to that. Um, and, and, and like, mm. it's called it's actually really interesting. It's like a prequel, an adaptation of Eternity Unbound, and then a sequel to it altogether. It's called, I think, I mean, End of Eternity, it's called Eternity Unbound, the whole book by William Leaf, and and that's sort of an mm. astonishing. Uh, piece of work that again, you know, it, it's just amazing, sort of what you can do in book form because it's it, it's kind of like a science fiction story outside of space nineteen ninety nine that becomes space nineteen ninety nine. You know what I mean? Because it's about yeah. you know, it, it's about this character's sort of whole history and life, including you know what we saw on the screen and what happens after. So, um, you know, and and then there's some really good short stories. Um, I liked survival too. The one that came after 
the Forsaken, um, I thought was really good. You know, and, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit I have not had the opportunity to read many more of those. Um, but I mean, I know they're you know done by people who lo- who love the show. Um, so, but but I'm I'm flattered that that you know people said that they liked my book. Writers always want to hear that, but I can tell you there there are a lot of great books, and and other people you know certainly would tell you. You know, Eternity Unbound, Survival, uh, Born for Adversity—all great books. Hmm. Well, 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 good because, like I say, I, now a lot of these are, are are easier to come by than they were when I went frantically searching for those. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, like I say, I don't know why, but uh, uh, the fact that this stuff is still out there and being published, like I say, uh, not not that I'm. <laughs> Uh, I'm bad about this, but now that the idea is in my head, you need to do a second nonfiction book. (laughs) I have now become convinced that my idea is sheer genius and that it needs to exist simply because I want it, which is probably the worst reason in the world for for pushing for something like this. I have a, I have another writer friend who, um, uh, he's been involved. He's, he's been involved in writing a bunch of nonfiction, uh, he wrote the uh, FAQ books for uh, Star Wars and Star Trek. Oh, well, and, yeah, those uh, are great. That, Mark that, Clark. Mike, Mike Clark. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah, yeah he's, 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 he's a great guy. If you, yes. if, you, if you ever get the chance to meet him, you really ought to. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. I have and, those um, books. Those are great books. Oh, well, yeah, of course. They, I mean, they are. But uh, he's also um, been involved. He, he and uh, a, a, a co-writing partner did a, a great book called 60 Shockers, focusing on, focusing on the thrillers and horror movies produced in the 1960s. And uh, he and I, a few years ago, <laughs> were uh, were sitting around talking at a convention, just shoot, shooting the bull. And he's, he said, yeah, I've been kind of trying to figure out what to write next. And I said, well, man, what you really ought to, well, there, there's not a good book out there that really focuses heavily on all of the horror films that were produced in the 1940s. That's a, that's a really, that's a fertile decade to, to look at, you know, all the influences of right. the, the world war and all this, that, and the other. And like two, and like two months later, he says, I've just signed the contract. I'm going to write that book and it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and so here, I, here I am again, you know, got the, got the ear of a, of a, of a writer of, uh, focused on this kind of stuff. And I'm going, okay, here's uh, Here's your next project. Uh. I, I always, you know, it's, it's it's a crazy thing to say. I mean, I, I appreciate the encouragement. I, I, I still feel, you know, it, it's weird to have, you know, revisited Space Nine Channel. I have so many points in my life and, you know, still find things in it, you know, and, and still find like that rewatch valuable. So you know, as long as that's possible, I mean, I, I, I would certainly be open to that. I, I have so much material, you know, that I've now collected, you know, over the years, you know, to add to it. Well, I know you have that. There's that video extra with you on uh, the Space 1999 Blu-ray set, the one from Scream Factory. I should, I should, sure, I should make, I should make clear because I'm not sure if it's different uh, in uh, other countries. But yeah, where you, we were looking at all the uh, like the toys and the models yeah. and stuff. I'm in that office right now with all those toys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, my, my, mine is scattered. Mine is scattered with all kinds of idiotic crap as well. I have a. I'm staring right now at my uh, my toy of the green slime. So you know. Oh, excellent! Yeah, that's a fun movie. Oh well, yeah, yes. I I have a I have a, a strange fascination for for all things that I shouldn't. So yes. <laughs> I have fond memories of watching that some years with my son when he was like six or seven and and we loved watching it together it's a fun movie i mean it's you know it, it's got its virtues for sure oh most assuredly especially especially the fact that they that they were able to create those monsters at all 
Uh, <laughs> well, well, what's so weird is if you think about it, uh, and, and I, I, I did, I didn't really think about uh, putting this in front of you, but it's, there's something about the design of the green slime that reminds me a whole lot of the creature in Dragon's Domain. Oh, interesting. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. One is completely ridiculous shot in in bright light, and you know, <laughs> uh, the, the reason you're scared of it is because it's it's electrocuting everything that it touches and everybody that it touches, and it's pretty gruesome in that respect. And in the Space 1999 episode, it's actually a, a creature that's scary as hell. But right. But but it's got, they both have the floppy arms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's still that thing. You know, the green slime aren't shooting. You know, you know, wet skeletal corpses <laughs> out of its right. undercarriage. So there's that. But um, the I, I, I gotta say, you've written so many books on so many subjects that are near and dear to my heart. Uh, I only recently discovered that you wrote uh, the Rock and Roll Film Encyclopedia, which, <laughs> which just scares the hell out of me because I know exactly what will happen to me if I purchase that book. Uh, it'll be a rabbit hole that I, it'll be a rabbit hole that I'll be ensconced in for the next like eighteen months. But the uh, the uh, and I I also am a huge fan of uh, what what kills me is I look at your list of books and I go, well, I'm a huge fan of John Carpenter. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of, of Christopher Guest. You know, I'm I, I really enjoy the films of Sam Raimi as well. Huh? How odd? How can this be? But I have to admit that uh, some of my favorite of your writing is is the stuff that you've been churning out for years now on your incredible blog, uh, reflections oh. of uh, reflections on film and television. And first of all, let me just say that I have read and reread your essays on uh, Aliens 3 and Alien Resurrection again and again because we are so in concert on our thinking <laughs> on those films. I absolutely love your takes on them, and I absolutely love your examinations of those movies. But also, if you had done nothing else with that website, with that blog, other than your epic episode-by-episode episode examination of Thundar the Barbarian, <laughs> you, sir... Would you, you would you would deserve money from me? I mean, oh my just, goodness! Well, you're 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 so kind, and I, and I feel guilty because really my blog has fallen off. You know, I, um, I, I you know, in in my real life, sadly, you know, I I had been department chair uh, for like English and humanities, and, and it just you know it, it was like this huge kind of job, and it's just like the the blogging kind of fell off. It's, it's barely like hanging on alive at this point, but I'm I'm hoping to bring it back. Um, you know, I'm hoping to do uh, some more material. You know, I mean, I did the blog. I mean, I was blogging like multiple times, sometimes a day, you know, every day from like, you know, maybe two. it started in 2005, but I didn't really pick up like that. Like it was like 2012 to 2018 where I was just like, man, that was just, you know, and, and I loved it. I mean, I love that format. I love writing. I love writing about the things I love and I, and I feel bad because it's. It's sort of, sort of, uh, it's just been kind of fallow lately. But I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I need, I need to bring it back. I, I, I definitely do need to revive it. I, I, I'm just trying to believe in my heart that you know, there's always ups and downs. That you know, blogs like go up and then they go down and they come back and then they go down oh, yeah. again. And you know, but I, I do feel bad for regular readers. I mean, at some point, I mean, my, the readership was just huge, and, and that's why I was blogging every day. And then. You know, pandemic and other things happened, and I just kind of fell off the 
radar with that. So I, 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 I love, I love doing that. I loved writing about all this, and I loved having like James Bond week and Godzilla week and all that <laughs> stuff. You know, I mean, that was just my thing, being able to talk about. It. I mean. I, Again, I, I guess I don't lack for opinions, you know, getting to write like how much I love the Timothy Dalton, James Bond movies or or how much I love, you know. Yes, indeed. Having someone so so perfectly sum up some of the, the, the reasons why I find that those two those two Bond films for me kind of um, it kind of changed the way I that. Well, first of all, they, those two Bond films caused me to finally read the Ian Fleming novels. <gasps> me too. I read that's when I read oh. in the eighties and the late eighties. Yes, when I was in college, when Timothy Dalton was Bond, I said, I need. I obviously need to go back and read these. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because the 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 feeling at the time was. Don't get me wrong. I, I enjoy the Roger Moore James Bond films. Some, some of the, some of them a lot more than others. I think for your eyes only is exceptional. Yes. Um, but I think that um, and I, I unlike a lot of people will defend Octopussy, you know, with with a sword that reads "Please try me" because you want to <laughs> watch a view to a kill again, don't you, brain dead idiot? But. <clears throat> I love Octopussy you know, it, too. Yeah, Octopussy's great. Yeah, I, I, every, everybody always points to the same things in Octopussy, and I'm just like, um, you know, let's start let's start the discussion on some of the ridiculous things in that film that you love so much called The Spy Who Loved Me. <laughs> it's like I, I'm more than willing to discuss with you why it was so witty for him to throw that fish out of the submarine car once he got to the beach. Ah, yes, let's go for the cheap laugh because ah. <laughs> <laughs> Illogic reigns supreme. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> I, 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 I'm not going to go down that path now, or I will, I will find my, uh, I will go to the closet, pull out my soapbox, and and not come down for the next 15 minutes. But the uh, the joys of your writing on these films is it, 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 it's a, it's a pure pleasure every time. And I just well, I, so I, nice. I wanted you to know that. And I'm, I'm not you. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. I'm not <laughs> trying to make you I'm not trying to 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 inflate the the size of your hat band. I'm just trying to tell you that this that I I often find myself uh, being able to better focus my thoughts on a film after having read yours. And that's not always true of film criticism, either good or bad. And so I find that what you uh, what you're focusing on resonates with me and how you're writing about it also does. And I think that that is wonderful. Uh, and I want to, I want to thank you for your efforts. I know that blogs are hell. (laughs) Blogs can be one of the most gratifying things in the world because of the immediacy of it. Right. But, uh, it don't pay nothing. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I want to thank you for what you said. That means so much to me. I mean, you know, writing is a solitary profession and hmm. you know you're sort of alone with your thoughts things like that and 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 sometimes you know so, sometimes you do go into a rabbit hole of your own thoughts and i think um you know writing has been so good for me uh to to be able to sort of clarify my own thinking about things and and also i i mean i you know i, I hope it's keeping me young because I, I don't want to be the person who automatically dismisses something because it's new or different. And I think like, yeah. as long as I'm writing about these things, um, I, I'm going to be more open to experiencing new things. I, I, I hate to be, you know, I, I don't want to get, <laughs> I don't want to get old. We all get old. I don't want to get, I don't want to get to the point where I can't see the beauty in things. I mean, even, um, you know, in such a strange way. And, and again, I know, you know, some people will probably freak out, but you know, horror films of the two thousands comes out and, um, 
January or February of this year. And, oh. you know, I went back and I revisited the Rob Zombie Halloween movies after a decade. I thought, you know, there's I, I really didn't like them at the time, but watching them now, you know, they're not the other – Halloweens. They're not they're not John Carpenters, they're Rob Zombies and they're nothing at all like John Carpenters, which I love, but as Rob Zombies, yes, they're kinda yes. interesting. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I want to be able give to you be the open I will give you the that. word I interesting. Wanna, when a remake is shit, I want to be able to say a remake is shit. But when a remake is interesting, yeah, exactly. Maybe failed, but interesting, I also want to be able to see that. You know, and I and I think blogging uh, you know, always kind of allowed me to do that. Uh, and I and I hope it will again. Oh, God. well, yeah, I, and I, look, I and what, what's amazing is, <laughs> no, no, I completely, I, I completely agree with you that I would rather Did have an interesting failure so than, than a, than a successful, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I was on mute, like a total moron. No, was, no, no. I was commenting, I just, um, my, my visceral dislike <laughs> of the Rob Zombie Halloween films uh, probably should have been emanating even through, even through the mute <laughs> I, button. I felt it, Be- the silence spoke volumes. <laughs> But, you know, but I mean, but I get it because that's where I was. I mean, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. And I remember writing on my blog in 2007. I was like, like, so this is the light, like, it comes out today and today's like the last day where we have these other Halloweens. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, and doesn't that suck? Um, well, that's the, the that's the horrible thing. To, the, the most horrible thing about that, that the Rob Zombie Halloween films is it's as if no one thought to tell him look, this doesn't have to be just another version of the same shit you've already done. Well, you know, that, that's the interesting thing. Oh, I say about other things he's done. I say the interesting thing for me about Halloween is the first hour, like when he gets to just aping Carpenter in the second half, it's like, oh, wow, you just blew it. Like, if you wanted to make your own Halloween, make your own Halloween. You don't need the guy in the um, sheet. You don't need the... Um, you, you know, you, you don't you don't need to restage what John Carpenter did. Yeah, because you're not going to succeed at besting it. Exactly, stretch. you're not going to be able to do that better than what he did. So go off and follow your kind of twisted, you know, redneck muse, whatever it is on that, and make that one. You know, make that one. But 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 I will say that there is a lot to be said for what for for your your intent, which is I have on many occasions years after the fact, gone back to revisit something that I felt felt was uh, a less than successful attempt right. at, at, you know, at whatever. And on revisiting it, realized, oh, there are things here that I that I enjoy. There are things here that I actually like. Right. Uh, I was very I was very resistant for years to most of the entire slasher genre. And then at a certain point I revisited and I can't, I don't even know which one it was and realized, Oh wow. I'm, I'm, I'm finally starting to see what fans of this genre see within it. And you mentioned earlier something that the not wanting to get to a point where you're that old man who's telling everybody to get off their damn line. Right. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not being able to appreciate anything new that I see reflected back at me from the internet. So often these days where I can't tell if they really can't enjoy it or if they're trying to find a way to, uh, to uh, be hip or cool or, or have the hot take that, that, you know, gets a whole lots of clicks and likes. It's, I, I, and I had to be honest at the end of the, at the end of the thought process, I don't care right. what I don't, want to be is that person whose knee-jerk reaction to anything new is ah, it's crap and part of part of that is something that I've, I've had in my mind for a very long time something that I was told uh, back God save me in my college radio days uh, when uh, I was informed rather uh, rather stoically that most people's musical tastes were 
pretty much in cement by the by their late twenties. By about twenty seven <laughs> or twenty eight, most people do, they they stop listening or start being cur- stop even being curious about new forms of music or new types of music or even new artists to a certain degree. And um, I thought that that had to be ridiculous. But as I've moved through my life, I've seen that that is true to a degree. Right. But I I knew that something about that was wrong because. I'm in my 50s, and I just discovered a new band yesterday, and I continue right. to I, t- I continue to find new music, and I think that that is part of the reason why I find so much joy in some of the things that are happening every year, year in and year out, and why I'm so appalled at people who completely dismiss uh, like uh, it's 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 especially prevalent within um, horror and science fiction. Where people just immediately dismiss new things without even I mean without a backwards glance at it. Right. You know, I mean, I, and not, you know, to be brutally frank, the, you know, sort of the period where I kind of fell off a little bit with the blog, and it's kind of, as I said, it's kind of gone foul. There was, what I was seeing was this rise of this real toxicity in fandom and a real ugliness. And I, I kind of lost the heart to, I mean, not that I was ever the target, but, yeah, you know, it, it wasn't like it was directed at me or anything, but, you know, I just kind of lost the heart to keep talking about it every day when I was seeing, you know, you know, not not to say you can't criticize things you don't like. Not that you, you know, oh, but, yeah. but but watching like out the gate, people say, well, Star Trek Discovery is going to be bad because it has an African-American <laughs> woman as a lead. Don't they know? You know, you know, it's like. But, or or saying that, but not saying it in that clear of a term. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, did you not watch Deep Space Nine and Voyager? You know, Star Trek's always sort of been doing that kind of like, like and, and you know, and or or watching some of the hostility towards Chris Carter in the revival of the X Files, and you know, yeah. I, everywhere I turned, there was just this real hostility. I remember, I remember reading stuff like, they need to take this away from him. I'm like, oh my gosh, he created this, like. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's his baby. Leave it alone. If you like it, good. If not, shut up. Right, right. You know, you know. At some point, she's like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, I've spent so much time, sort of, you know, talking and writing about these things, and, and, and like just seeing all of this. It wasn't just negativity. It wasn't like saying, "Like I don't think this is good because it's." It, 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 oh, there's never. That's just it. There's never a because. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But to see to see how they went go after you know Chris Carter or or whomever, and and it's just like, oh my gosh, you've made it so personal, and and you and you're like yeah. saying, you know, take away his baby, you know, don't don't keep keep it going, but don't let him write for it and stuff like that. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, people, yeah, because <laughs> you know because the unspoken <laughs> thing is. Because I could write it better, you know. Take it away from Chris Carter. Let me write. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, it's like, hey, listen. Just yeah. because many of the best episodes of X Files were written by someone who isn't Chris Carter doesn't mean that you can do it. <laughs> right. Hey, we got Frank Spottis. We got Vince Gilligan. We got a lot. So many great writers there. But uh, you know, yeah. again, it, you know, I have to admit, it just, I, I do think I sort of had a little bit of a, um, you know, I don't know what the right word is. Sort of a falling out sort of i mean again it wasn't with anybody between me and well it's hard it's hard to it's hard to maintain a level of enthusiasm when the 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 constant thing that is that is being fed into your brain is a, is negativity if it, right. if, if it's a it, that, that's not that's not a neg, negativity and negative 
negative thoughts on those on those subjects do not breed creativity in any way. Right, right. You know, I it, it really does. It's like you know when you sit down to write and you're trying to you know create a, a, an argument about. I mean, you have to be focused to an incredible degree, and like you know, it does. It just saps your creativity. Like you get online, you see, you know, what people are saying, and and again, listen, you can absolutely have great reasons why you don't like the last Jedi or you don't think mm-hmm. you don't think Star Trek discovery is good. You can have absolutely a valid opinion and, and point to those reasons, but like the attacks on Ryan Johnson, like, you know, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, Ryan Johnson, who don't get me wrong. I'm not a fan of the less Jedi overall. Right. But to be honest, that's the first movie he's ever made that I didn't love. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, so, so he, he, he went out, he did it. He, he did what he thought was right. It was his vision. Maybe you didn't like his vision, but it's like the the vitriol against him, like so out of proportion. I mean, it was a movie you didn't like. You know what I mean? It was a movie you didn't like. But not, but like you know, death threats and you know everything else. Oh, I know. That's it, that's just it. It's this bizarre desire to escalate everything into not just the personal but the destructive. I don't right, get it. Right. It's like oh my gosh, you know, it, it, it makes me you know. Again, now I really will sound it. It does make me sort of think of the past. Like, oh my gosh, imagine if Star Trek the Motion Picture had been released when the internet was. <laughs> oh, there, there would have been there would have been no Wrath of Khan. That would have been right, the end of everything. You know? It was over. <laughs> that would have been the end of it, right, right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my gosh. You know, again, I know that sounds really old and cantankerous to say that, but I, I, I do. Find... No, it's it's accurate, man. Okay, well, I think it's you. accurate. <laughs> thank you for confirming my feeling about that, because you know, it, again, it it's. It's hard to sort of stay creative and upbeat in that world of such, like you said, it's not just the negativity because, again, people are free to like or not like whatever mm-hmm. they want, but that, it's the destructive quality of it. that. Yeah, if you have valid opinions, no, 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 they don't even have to be valid in, in, from my perspective, but if you have opinions and you want to give voice to them so that we, so that you, I can... In, in in what feels at least like an attempt to show me your your thought process and why you arrived at your opinion, that's great. Right. I want that. Yes. Because because that allows me in in discussion with you to sharpen my uh, my reasons for what I like about it and to possibly see things about it that are flaws. That's what I want. That's why I like talking about. To right about this stuff right. i can discover things that i like or dislike about the thing that we're discussing without the complete dismissal of it that essentially shuts down all discussion it's pointless right right and 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 you know attacking the messenger you know ad hominem attacks things like that they're saying oh my goodness you know this it's it, it's really gotten to sort of an ugly place and whew, you know oh well uh, well, let, let me let me drag us back to to a to a simple question that uh, focuses focuses uh, focus. Uh, man, I can't even talk. Is it too much caffeine? Is that what it is? <laughs> this will refocus us. There, see, I found a way around it. <laughs> to to space nineteen ninety nine. Just briefly, I this is a this is a very reductionist way of of asking these kinds of questions. But just out of curiosity, just for um, uh, let's say shits and giggles. What are your favorite episodes of Space 1999? Oh wow, you know, and and it's so hard. I've got my book here. I brought, in preparation. I brought it so I could. Right? <laughs> let, 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 let me look here. Right? <laughs> you know, it, it's really hard to say to to narrow it down because so many have 
you know, just incredible virtues. I, I love another time, another place. Mm-hmm. I love force of life, uh, end of eternity, uh, mission of the Darians, dragon's domain, testament of Arcadia. Those are all ones that like just jump out at me. I'm, I'm fascinated by the soap suds episode. Cause obviously, you know, the space, bra- <laughs> I, I like that space brain. Space bra- I'm absolutely fascinated by that episode. I have to admit, uh, when I when uh, you t- you told me, and, and you make it very clear in the in the uh, in the, the beginning of uh, your novel, The Forsaken, that Space Brain is kind of uh, this this happens definitely after Space Brain. Uh, Space Brain is one of those that has got that that episode. I understand the title fits it, but if you ever wanted the title for an episode of a science fiction television series to make everyone in the world go, yes. I could skip that one. Right. Cringe. That's the title. Yeah. Cringe. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, but you know, I mean, the thing that just gets me about Space Braid, and which is so odd. I mean, you think about, you know, okay, the the title sounds terrible. Uh, yeah, but it's a great science fiction idea. It, it is. It is. And even as silly as the visualization of those soap suds are, you know, it's played to what a whole, you know, Mars the Bringers. I mean, it's like this tense, suspenseful. You know, sequence. Mm-hmm. You know, where the moon base is filling up with this, you know, substance, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is so great, but it's soap suds. You know, <laughs> but but um, I mean, <laughs> but they're antibodies. Man. They're, they're antibodies. Absolutely. You've got to you've got to suspend your disbelief. Yes, absolutely. And and you know, the thing that just drives me nuts. You know, you're talking about watching this with your friend and obsessing on something. Like I wa- I watched that episode so many times, and it drives me insane. You know. Alpha knows what it's going to do, and the and it's doing it in cooperation with the space brain, which is not a sentence I thought I'd say out loud. But <laughs> um, you know, and it's sending nukes. You know, it, it, it's got a plan so that the space brain can survive, and it can pass through the space brain. But like h- halfway there, randomly, the nukes just short circuit, and, and like the eagle goes, yeah. and it's like, and and no one ever acknowledges like the pure weirdness of that. And so that for me was like the whole core of my novel, which is like, okay, this space brain spans what billions of light years, they say. It's it's controlling galaxies, solar it's like managing everything, right? And apparently yeah, and, apparently. And, and now Alpha has been sent on a course. It's like a bullet shot out of a gun at this brain, right? And then somehow the alphans and the brain communicate and realize, oh you know, we can we can both survive this. And they do the plan, but no, some someone else obviously has a plan, and it's to put a bullet. Yeah, something interferes. Some, yeah. Something interferes. Something absolutely interferes. And then I think, what is that? Is that the thing that wants to get Alpha to Arcadia? Is that is what is that? Is that the thing that let the moon survive and just you know knocked it out of orbit in the first place? Is that the thing that put it on the course with the black sun? black hole whatever well see that's just it that's what makes that episode uh, like i say i i cringe saying the title that's what makes space brain a great episode because it has two very very incredible uh if you were if two incredible science fiction ideas one an alien life form so big and so almost completely incomprehensible that it takes it takes forever to be able to even Acknowledge that it exists and to communicate with it. Right. And then, and only because it is attempting to communicate with the Alphans. And then the idea that the episode seems to bear out that there are larger forces right. than that 
uh, you know, altering the course of this rogue satellite moving through open space that for some reason needs to do away with this entity for some other purpose. Right. That, that one, we'll, not only will we never comprehend this life form, we'll never comprehend the reasons we are being used as its death. We will never understand why its death was necessary. We'll never understand. the. We'll, there's so many levels of un, 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 unanswerable, unknowable things. And see, these are the kinds of, of ideas that were, you know, they, they've been for decades tossed around on the printed page for science fiction stories. I mean, all, right. everywhere, here, there, and yon. But translating them to the big screen or the small screen, I mean, your, your, your first really good attempt and the most obvious is something like 2001 A Space Odyssey where right. that ending is open to interpretation. And it, it, it's not, it, there, there are ways to view it and there are other ways to view it. And then there are other, other ways to view it. <laughs> Absolutely. And the same, and for that to be true of an episode of science fiction television in the mid 70s is one, extraordinarily ambitious it matches the ambition of the incredible special effects the show is wonderfully famous for and 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 nobody nobody disputes the the wonder and beauty of the special effects work done for the television for this television series they just they can't because right. so many things were built on what was done here i mean with a lot of the same technicians you know a lot of the yeah. same people who worked on this worked on alien and on so many other films past this but right Finally bringing this idea, the, or like I say, in this particular episode we're talking about, God save me, it's entitled Space Brain, <laughs> to television. So many of these larger, more philosophical ideas. That, don't, don't get me wrong. A, a lot of times on Space 1999, the, phil, the philosophical meandering could bore you right into your couch cushions. Uh, you're, you're going to find yourself losing control and slight, slightly dozing. Uh, you know, <laughs> there are episodes of this show that you do not need to watch after a full meal. It's just not going to go well. That's but right. When, when they my wife got... can't sleep, she says, put on an episode of Space 1999. It's a cure for insomnia, I swear to God. That's why they broadcast it in the middle of the night. Uh, but, <laughs> but when it gets it right, when it nails it, it's, it becomes something that will stick with you for your entire lifespan. I, I agree. I mean, the – okay, it's titled Space Brain. The threat looks like an out-of-control laundry machine has you know flooded the set. But, yes. but in this episode – is the intimation of hierarchies within hierarchies of, of you, the universe and reality. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that it's right there. It's right there. And do you think, how can this show have, like, been able to, to do that, you know, to, to be both this thing where you've got somebody titles it Space Brain and where it's like, well, the best we can do is, you know, soap suds. But, but then it's intimating at all of these incredible cosmic realities and cr creating multiple narrative pathways like parallel pathways at the same time what is alpha experiencing what is the brain experiencing and and what is the real agenda there because there is clearly an uh, another force as you said beyond the brain doing something here it's an assassination alpha is the method of assassination for that brain for it some, certainly seems that way yeah. for some force right uh, you know it's just 
you know, to me, it's 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 just kind of stunning to think, and, and to think that that's even kind of just, um, you know, a throwaway. I mean, the 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 teaser aspect of the episode, I mean, is brilliant and gruesome too. Where it's like that chunk of meteorite comes back, and they realize it has human tissue in it, and that little chunk that's oh, no yeah. bigger than a tree stump is the eagle that got crushed by the brain. I mean, what a great image and way to you know start the episode you know they were just firing on all of these creative but admittedly odd cylinders you know what i mean they're just it's like it's that's what's kind of amazing about is it is that episode and that's this is true of more than a few episodes in the first season there are enough ideas embedded in the episode for two or three right and and they're they're mashing them together because they you know the writer has found a way to to have one dovetail with the other, but at the same time, the there are, there are episodes where it's like you know we could have used a little something extra here. I wish we could have shifted <laughs> shifted one of these subplots or ideas over into this one just to help us out a little. Oh yeah, it's it's true. The one that drives me crazy like that that I I just cannot watch or revisit is Ring Around the Moon. That was just so just kills me. It's like yeah. Oh my uh, man. Uh, that that one just murders me. That's like I to stay awake through that one is is just murder. It's like oh wow, this is you know just the dullest thing I've ever seen, and, and it needs another subplot. It needs another three subplots or it something. It needs something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, I've already mentioned my you know my uh, my my complaints about the infernal machine, but I have to say that. Uh, although some people like it, the, the last sunset always strikes me when I watch it as one of those things where it's like, how are these people thinking this is going to work? <laughs> how are these people thinking that this mysterious alien benefactor who who throws up an atmosphere around the moon, how do they, they, they got to know this cannot last. They got to know that this is, go, there's no way. I mean, this can't right. be done. And, you know, from, for me, I, I, I know I grapple with that episode too. I mean, I love it. I, I like, again, the, the idea is so original and so beautifully presented, you know, and, and then, but you, you feel like something. And, and then at some point I love it. They always have somebody in the, the show, like recognize it, you know, and Koenig's like, wait a minute, it's going to rain and we're in a crater. And yeah, you know, at the bottom of that <laughs> crater will be moon base alpha, you know, it's like, so they, they do, they do seem to acknowledge that, but that doesn't stop them from doing the story, which is kind of amazing to, to sort of run with that, initial idea of what if the moon had an atmosphere and what would it look like? What if it rained on the moon, mm-hmm. you know, and to take that and to spin an image around it. I remember I asked Johnny Byrne about another time, another place. I said, where did you get that idea of like, you know, going to light speed and like the moon splits into two moons and everybody splits into two selves and one gets ahead of the other and the other catches up. And he said to me, there was a myth when he was a child in Ireland about a certain church that if you walked around it like counterclockwise at a certain point of day where the sun was a certain position, you'd encounter yourself walking around it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I said, oh, my gosh. It's like, interesting. So it's like that would like something as intriguing and tantalizing but small as that. Yeah. You know, then becomes this amazing episode which you hang upon all of this sort of metaphysics and philosophy and other stuff. And I, and I mean, I think The Last Sunset could you know, kind of be the same kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, like if, if I were sitting there and I was a writer, I said, you know what I'm thinking about? What would it be like if it rained on the moon? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or what, <laughs> you know, what, what, what would it, what, what if there was a blue sky over the moon, you know, and, and then going from there? 
but but I do I I really do respect the, the writers because I feel like they 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 did at least as I said genuflect to the fact that some of these ideas are so out there, you know, and, and have the character. It, it does a lot to diffuse that when the characters realize, you know, Koenig pulls out that map and says, wait a minute, Victor, you know, <laughs> your, your, your rainy afternoons or whatever are beautiful, but we're built in a crater and then, you know, it's going to drown Moonbase out. You know, it, it, they're recognizing it as it happens. Yeah. Um, well, and it's also another one of those episodes where, you know, we, we, we never, we never see the aliens. We don't encounter, you know, there's no face to face with whatever, whatever is doing this. Right. And, you know, that is so against type for science fiction television as it is generally thought of, especially at that time. And it, don't, don't get me wrong. The show, the show encountered more than its fair share of aliens. And as a matter of fact, one might say that for some reason, alien races were lining up to take their turn. But, uh, <laughs> Let's be clear, it, right. it does seem that uh, no matter how far away from the solar system you get, you're still going to run into Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Brian Blessed. So, hey, good. Right, and Joan Collins, if you're lucky. Oh, well, that's <laughs> true, that's true. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about that, but just you are, you are correct. But the, uh, the, the joys of the show... Like I say, they're not for everybody. <laughs> they're certainly right. right. It's not a it's not a show built for everybody. You've got to be of a certain twisted bent uh, <laughs> to to really enjoy this. And I have to admit that's why for for a long period of time, simply I, I simply thought um, that I didn't think that Space nineteen ninety nine was as popular as it was until it came out on Blu Ray. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I do think you know. One of the things that I think helped Space 1999, like because m- more people have definitely, I think, experienced more. More people have spoken out in the last twenty years, sort of championing its virtues. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think that is because for, it, you know, and and again, I mean, I I love Star Trek, but Star Trek receded as the yardstick because Star Trek, because it was so great, was the yardstick by which everything else was measured. Mm-hmm. And we and, and up through the '90s, we got a lot of Star Trek. But then we started getting, you know, we got Farscape, and then yes. we got Stargate, and then we got Firefly, and then you know, and then it became like a regular thing that we were ex- getting to experience other visions of outer space. You know, then Doctor Who came back. You know, and and it's, it's like all this, and it's like okay. Yes, we have Star Trek, but now it's not necessarily the yardstick. A lot of people would have said, "Okay, now Firefly's the yardstick," or Farscape. Well, I mean, I I firmly remember the feeling that all Star Trek fans, all science fiction fans, had in uh, the late '80s when the Next Generation first premiered. It was the only thing. Right. It was it. Exactly. That was it. It was. It was. And so that changed, and and I think that change benefited. Space 1999. It also benefited Jerry Anderson's previous show, UFO. Yeah, which, uh, by the way, was uh, I, I think UFO is just such a brilliant television series. We're working our way. Uh, my my poor my poor sweetheart. She and I are working our way through U, uh, UFO right now. But I have to say, it is such a. Um, it's a great show. Well, it's a great show, but we have to take breaks because almost every third episode is the thing where it, it feels like the the writers were just going to hold the audience down and punch them repeatedly in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the thing about 
about a UFO for me was like I, I do find the the first several episodes very slow going and very repetitive. But like, and and I don't want to spoil anything if you haven't seen it. But when you get to like the last five or six, they're all these incredible trippy odd things that like you see you almost see the groundwork being laid for space time oh well uh, yeah don't get yeah and that is that is what it was but at the same time what 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 keeps us from like watching two or three episodes of ufo in a row is the the simple fact that it's like are they going to kill another kid (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah that's like oh man what is that a a question of responsibility. Was oh, yeah, it yeah. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I can't remember the full title, yeah. but it's it's yeah. it's it's that, it's that episode. It's like there've been some dark episodes. I mean, there've really been some dark episodes in those yeah. in those first episodes, and then you get to that one, and you're just like, oh my god, holy shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, just yeah. Walk, you walk away from that one. It just it's almost like uh, you know, it's almost like a car wreck. You almost kind of have to like walk it off. You have to walk around and kind of absorb it for a minute. It's like a- absolutely, a- absolutely, but. You know the thing is, you we can see it now. People can see it now and see that, or Space nineteen ninety nine, or or even really Babylon five, because there was a lot of competition between Babylon five and um, Deep Space Nine yeah. stuff like that. You know, you're able to now look at, you know, there's the Expanse, there's all this stuff. Uh, there, there's the the redone Battlestar Galactica. There's the Stargate franchise, all that stuff. So Star Trek isn't the only yardstick anymore. True. I mean, it's it'll, it'll always be a jewel in the crown, but it's not the only yardstick. And so now you're able to look at Space 1999 free of the expectation that it should be like Star Trek, or you're able to look at UFO that way, or you're able to look at Babylon Five or Farscape or whatever, you know. And and I just think when we were you know, in, in the seventies where Star Trek was hanging on and, you know, it was the only game in town and, and then even into the eighties and then it, it became an industry, you know, it's, you know, deep space nine, then Voyager, then enterprise, you know, it's like, oh, it's Star Trek all the time around the clock, around the clock, you know, that, that's the only yardstick. And, but then that really changed, you know, in the next decade. And I think in that new environment, space 1999 flourishes, uh, I, 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 where people don't, have to view it through the lens of Star Trek. And I mean, if I have any regrets about my book, Exploring Space 1999, besides the fact it was the first book I wrote in my career 24 years ago, it's that I decided when I started writing, because like the criticisms lodged at the series were absurd and not even often accurate, that I was going to litigate it like a court case. And I was going to say, this is what people say, how it's like Star Trek. This is why it's not. And, 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 you know, so, so I, I definitely know. I mean, some people have read like, oh, man, there's like, you know, instead of talking enough about the show, he's talking about why it's different from Star Trek, how it compares to Star Trek. And I don't like that. I, mean, I could change anything. I would do that. But, you know, what I say to those people, you know, look at it the way I examine film or TV. I always look at context, like what is happening. And for me, the context of writing that book was, you know, because I wrote it in 1994. So it was like Star Trek has you know, Star Wars had not come back yet. Um, Star Trek was dominating the world. I mean, that it was it. Oh, I know. Multiple, was, multiple series. There was a period in the late 90s where I completely checked out of Star Trek. Me too. Because, I, was, because I, yeah. I was like, I was I, I can't I can't watch Deep Space Nine anymore, even though it was becoming more interesting by then. I, Voyager, after the first few episodes, I was like, I can't. There's just, I'm done. Thank you. I never paid attention to Enterprise except for the first few episodes where I was like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, whatever. Right. And it wasn't, right. to, to be honest, in those three J.J. Abrams films, 
I found complete. I, I found to be completely, per, completely perfectly cast and completely badly written in every aspect. <laughs> It's like, it's like, oh, wow, they look great and the cast is perfect and it they just they don't work. It, it's it's uh, I once described the three uh, the three Star Trek uh, films made by Abrams and his crew as essentially Star Trek for people who hate Star Trek. Uh, they, 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 they don't want to think they, they don't want to do, they don't want to they don't want to feel they just want some action. God damn it. And uh, that, that's what those films are. It, literally, it wasn't not until Discovery came along that I found myself actually fe- feeling as if I were being invited back into something that had some substance. Right. No, I, I mean, I understand. I, I know. I mean, I, I can enjoy the Abrams films for what they are. And, and I've certainly gone back and watched all of Voyager because I gave up on that about midway through. And I, and I, I enjoy it. Um, I can enjoy it now in a way I couldn't enjoy it. Um, in that atmosphere where it was like taken for granted and it was just like every week, you know, three new hours of Star Trek. It was two overload. New hours. I couldn't. It yeah. was. It was overload and it was all kind of the same. But now it's like I can go back and I, and I went back and I finally watched Enterprise and, and I enjoyed it. For But I had to have, I, I couldn't do it at the time. So, so my context was, you know, Star Trek has won. We're going to approach the year 1999. That's an expiration <laughs> date. Space 1999 is going to disappear. You know, it will be, you know, the other version of history wins. Let's, let's face it. You yeah, know, it, yeah. it was, you know, that's not how we do science fiction TV. And boy, was I wrong. And I'm glad I was wrong <laughs> because, because it, the opposite happened. Um, you know, again, you know, serious, amazing, thoughtful programs, you know, again, like, you know, Firefly, uh, Farscape, uh, no. I was about to say Firefly and Farscape are the two the two that just reignited my interest in what was being done for television on science fi- right. science fiction because they both approached it with so much energy and creativity there was just something that, that you you had not seen this before you know right right and so that happened and that I mean I, not to be grandiose but I mean I literally feel like that changed the course of history of science fiction television and 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 it's sort of rescued space 1999 from the dustbin of history because you know now, like suddenly people were saying well I, I love star trek but i love farscape and and, and there's room for that and and mm-hmm. and, look, and and here's firefly and that's so different and there's room for me to love firefly and also like star trek and you know so so it's like it's kind of like the, those things i think really you know pulled space 1999 maybe ufo you know out of um obscurity uh, and, and, I, and I'm glad they did. So, so you know, for me, I, I mean, I, lo- I of course, I love my book. I love my book. I hope people continue <laughs> to derive pleasure. Everybody keep buying my book. But what, <laughs> what I did not see, you know, at that time was that, was that, you know, yeah. there was going to be this kind of shift and how people thought about these programs. Because to all intents and purposes, it looked like, you know, the battle was over and Star Trek had won. And 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 that's and I love Star Trek and that's great, but that was going to be the vision of how we do sci-fi on TV, you know. And and that then, but then that really wasn't the case. So it's like you know, if I could change anything about my book, it's like oh, you know, John, you should have focused more on other things than you know necessarily 
trying to you know make this legal case about why it's valid against Star Trek. You know what I mean? So well, yeah. I, I got to tell you, I think that we will have uh, we will have completely rounded the corner <laughs> on this on this reevaluation of of different science fiction series of the past. The minute the minute that Blake's Seven is available on Blu-ray in the United States, <laughs> uh, absolutely. I don't you know. So I I got the DVD set and I had to get a, a oh region, me too me too. I had too. to get a regionless player so that I could share it with my son. We I think maybe it was two years ago we watched mm-hmm. them all and. You know, we we had a great time uh, watching him. He he loved it. Uh, you know, so, so much so that he, he you know when we would play Minecraft, he named his dog in Minecraft Orac. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, that's great. That's wonderful, Joel. <laughs> that's well, Mr. Muir, I, I have to admit that we could uh, oh. clearly keep talking for the rest of this day. Absolutely. But, uh, uh, I, I, I know I've got things to do and, and I'm sure that you do as well. Uh, should I call you professor or? What? Oh, no, no. I, I, I'm only an assistant professor. <laughs> Just call me John. <laughs> okay. Okay. Mr. Muir or John or, or I don't know, JKM, whatever we're going to call you. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to thank you once again for being willing to uh, to come onto the show. You you didn't know me from Adam. I was just some lunatic asking about a book that you wrote, and uh, I, I I I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, th- this is the kind of conversation that I absolutely love to have because it's uh, it's 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 amongst people who share interests and also share a, a desire to talk about them in a way that uh, that actually opens up things instead of closing them down. And this is this is this is this is what makes things worth living for, man. This is great. I can't I cannot thank you enough for coming on today. Well, I want to thank you. I, I really enjoyed this, and and I have to say, I feel you are a kindred spirit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I'm having read your stuff for as long as I have. I, I've known you were a kindred spirit from the moment I spotted that Blake Seven book, but it's same time uh I, I i would love to if if in the future we can we can uh talk talk again about uh some some other subject i'm not i'm not trying to guide us toward a, a blake seven conversation because uh that would <clears throat> that would be uh that would be just that would be just for the two of us. But, <laughs> if you if you if you want to talk about if you want to talk about a, a, a small fan base, uh, especially in the United States, whoa, there you go. Right. But uh, the uh, the joys of this. You said you mentioned earlier you've got you've got a you've got a book coming out here soon. What what other projects do you have uh, in the pipeline? Well, I'm really excited that uh, my so so I created a web series in 2000. From 2007 to 2009, it's called The House Between, um, science fiction horror. So, I mean, super low budget. I mean, you know, but but so great. Uh, great actors. I feel like we had great stories. We, we were nominated for Best Web Production in 2008. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't like to oversell it. I don't want to undersell it. We had a great time making it. I feel like we were really valuable, but it's also a super low budget production from 2007. Mm-hmm. But anyway... We are reviving the house between as an audio presentation. Um, you know, we've gotten the original casts back together, and we're going to be telling new stories. So uh, that should be coming out in the spring. Um, I do have horror films of the two thousands coming out in January or February of twenty twenty two, and um, I. I'm working on horror films for 2010. So, but but my contract for that doesn't end until 2024. So that'll be a while in the pipeline. So, well, you know, the the, the longer deadline allows you to have a little bit more uh, uh, time to uh, to focus on the things. The more time that passes, the, the the better. It's like the Doppler effect. The more you the more you can see of it, really. That's right. That's right. You know, you need a little distance from the decade before you understand it fully. So, 
uh, I'm happy to have a little bit of time and let all those sort of juices, you know, (laughs) marinate there. So thank you for us. And and Rod, I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me to be on and how much I've enjoyed this. Oh, that this was a pure pleasure. I, I really do hope that we can do this again. I would love to. This is Rod, just jumping in here one more time here at the end of the show to thank you for listening to what turned into a very long conversation between Mr. Muir and myself. And uh, I guess she must like Space 1999 or at least be curious enough to listen to us prattle on about it. Uh, We did have one little section there where we went off into horror films and slasher movies and things of that nature for a few minutes, but then we got back on track, back to the subject at hand, And, uh, wow, yeah, I think we could have probably kept going for a long time. And with any luck, Mr. Muir will return to the show and we'll talk about some other subject. Lord knows there's enough subjects he's written about that uh, we could talk about uh, a dozen different things, I would say. If you've got any comments or suggestions or ideas about the show, the email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, thank you once again for listening to this uh, Space 1999 episode. We'll talk to you again very soon.